John chapter 12, verse 32, the Lord Jesus Christ with great emphasis says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Lord, we come before you. I'm a very weak man and we're a very weak people and Satan is attacking us constantly to exploit our weaknesses. We pray that you would come one more time through the power of the cross. Even though it looks weak to men, Lord, it is your wisdom and your power and that you'd pray, you'd help me to preach in a demonstration of the spirit of power, even in the midst of my weakness, so that your people would not put their faith in men, but would put their faith in God. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, I wanna begin this morning by just telling you explicitly uh, three things that have been on my mind and my heart over the last number of weeks especially, in some ways over the last 20 years, but especially in the last few weeks, three things that I think are impacting our whole congregation. Uh, there are always things that are a million things happening in the life of the congregation, but there's been three issues that I, I think are impacting us as a whole, as a congregation that I would like to address over this Christmas season, over this Advent season. Now, the first one is just Christmas. Uh, as we speak, uh, presents are being purchased and uh, travel plans are being made and a children's production is being rehearsed and the choir is gathering and sermons are being written and all kinds of preparations are being made to celebrate Christmas. And I can't think of anything aside from the resurrection of Jesus that is more fitting for our celebration and our feasting and our gathering together. It's a good thing for us to sing and rejoice and worship and prepare for and to even exchange gifts in honor of the ultimate gift that was made to humanity at Christmas time. So that's the first thing is Christmas. The second thing is this Christmas offering. Uh, we're doing the Christmas offering a little differently. Uh, preachers, for whatever reason, I don't think we always have to, but get the heebie-jeebies about changing anything in the life of the church. And when we change anything in the life of the church, it, it really requires some care, some attention, some explanation. And so as we think about uh, cr this Christmas missions offering, I want to really explain why it is we want to care so much about missions, why it's so important, why it ought to be funded financially, why in the midst of your already busy life, you should carve out massive mental and heart space to care about those you will never meet. I want to think with you about that, especially as we think about the Christmas missions offering. And then the third thing, Christmas, Christmas missions offering, the third thing is I want to think with you over this Christmas season about missionaries, about missionaries. That's what the offering funds. And if you've been at any of these, you know that at our last three members meetings, we've wound up in long discussions about missionaries. How do we care for them? How do we support them? Who are they? Who are they accountable to? 
Those are all questions that we have been thinking about as a church. And uh, sometimes I think that God has really helped me to put all of those issues into an Advent series. And other times I think, man, Ryan, you always bite off too much. We'll decide later whether I have a, which one of those is true. But what I'd love to do is to think with you over the course of the next month about Christmas, the Christmas missionary offering, missions offering, and missionaries who we're supporting, and the role of not only what those missionaries, thinking rightly about what those missionaries are, who those missionaries are, but also how they ought to be sent and supported by the local church. So the other day I took a day to brainstorm and to read all kinds of scriptures and to read uh, different works of theology and different thoughts on the church and kind of journal and pray and think. And, and, and I came up with these four sermons, all that make one critical point. So here it is. Here's my outline for the next four weeks. If you're like, man, I've always wanted this. Well, eat it up. It'll never happen again. And so, uh, or rarely will it happen again. But here it is if you're wanting this kind of thing. Here's an outline for the next four weeks. Everything I say for the next four weeks should prove this central point. God is drawing people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. God is drawing people to himself. You're the proof from every tribe and tongue and nation through, and here's the four ways he's doing lifting up the Christ of Christmas on the cross. He's gathering a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This morning we'll look at this through John 12, lifting up the Christ of Christmas on the cross. Two, this is what we'll look at next week, sending out apostolic missionaries from the church. We'll start our study of that in Acts 13. Sending out apostolic missionaries from the church. Three, God is drawing people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself through congregations who tenaciously partner with those who've been sent. We'll survey the whole book of Philippians. God is drawing people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself through congregations who partner with those who've been sent. And then four, God is drawing people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the very movement of the stars. And we'll look back at Matthew chapter 2 and the star. We'll look at Christmas Eve morning uh, that guided the wise men to Jesus. And we'll notice how everything on the planet, not just your giving, that's small potatoes, God is moving the celestial bodies and everything else in human history so that there will be a people from every tribe and tongue and nation who worship Jesus. So that's the game plan. Let me jump in to John chapter 12. Let me jump into John chapter 12. And I want to keep it very simple with a simple verse. And I want us to notice three things from John chapter 12. Who's speaking, what he's talking about, and what he promises. Who's speaking, what he's talking about, and what he's promises. Now, the first point might seem the simplest, right? Who's speaking? 
A Jesus, good. But I want you to notice from the text that he actually wants to highlight in your mind who's speaking. That he doesn't just want to, you know, you go on reading your Bible and you just, oh yeah, there's these different Bible words and we catch them and read them and then we just sort of move on without much thought. Jesus, by the way he speaks, stops us and says, now notice who's talking. Don't just hear these words. Notice who's saying them. And that's why when you look at verse 32, it begins with, and I. It's actually really emphasized in the Greek. There's this sort of shoving it to the front. This is me talking, and I. And then again, in verse 32, when I am lifted up. So Jesus wants us to think about who it is that's speaking. And so that would call us, if you would, to think for a minute about who Jesus has been presented to, presented to us as, what we've been learning about Jesus, or what you would learn about Jesus if you looked at the Gospel of John. And what you find out when you look at the Gospel of John is that Jesus is not simply a great teacher, and he's not just God, but he's the God-man. He is God who's come in the flesh, that's who's speaking to us. I'll look back with you, Will, at John chapter 1 and just get a little feel of, for this from these very familiar verses. John chapter 1 starts in the deep end. It starts really by focusing on who God is and not just sort of generic idea of God, but a triune God, a God who is one in three persons. We're immersed in that right from the opening words of this gospel. If you're supposed to warm up by keeping things simple, John didn't get the memo. He jumps into the deep end and he says, in the beginning was the Word, that's speaking about God, the second person of the Trinity, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Now you might think, okay, this is somebody else. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So immediately, John's gospel immerses us into the reality that you can be with God, or there can be a being who is with God and is God. You know, oftentimes Christians are tempted to believe that we share a God with anyone who believes in monotheism. But we do not share a God with anyone who believes in monotheism. Allah, the God of Islam, is a solitary being who never knew a relationship or fellowship until he created, or at least that's how the story goes. In other words, Allah is fundamentally needy and creates, if he wants to have a relationship, he has to make something to create that relationship. There's no bounty in Allah that could ever overflow in creation because Allah is primarily singular and alone. 
The Christian God is, a God is the triune God who exists from eternity as one God in three persons. And if you think to yourself, man, I, I know a lot of people in the world, but I wouldn't want to be stuck with them for too long. That's exactly, God does not have that problem. The three people that he is, because they are one and he is three, the three people that he is are co-equal to himself, equal in glory and majesty and character and perfections. The God of the Bible exists in the perfect fellowship and community of the Trinity. And the Bible, in its kindness, even though these gods are equal, in its kindness names each of the members of the Trinity to give us a little bit of a glimpse into their fellowship. The first member of the Trinity is called the Father, because fathers, in our experience, originate and initiate everything. The first member of the Trinity is the Father. The second member of the Trinity is the Son. Not that God had a baby, but that in the fullness of the Trinity, the, 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 the Son is begotten of the Father. He, and he's, he's really... Uh, grasping for words now, he's the word. He's the one who expresses the Father. And then the third member of the Trinity really embodies all of the fellowship between the first two. He is the Holy Spirit. And what we're saying is that at Christmas time, the Word, who is this perfect expression of God, God would look at the face of the Son and see the perfect majesty of Himself. The Word, the Son of God, became man. And continuing with his, with his being, he, what does he do as a man? He does just what he does as God. He communicates God. The Word, now go down to verse 14, if you will. The Word, we're told, became flesh and dwelt among us. Mr. Charles knows these verses. Maybe a few of you do too. The Word became and dwelt among us. And so what you've got in Jesus is you've got the word, which is by nature communicating expression, right? But not just a word or I said something lighthearted or I tossed out a memo, but God himself who is the word now dwelling with man as the God man to put God on display in everything he does. And so if you were to walk through one of the gospels, and I hope you'll do this with maybe your kids over the course of this month, if you were to read through Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, you would find Jesus to be shockingly ordinary. He's a man. You could smell him. That's why we're told in the Gospel of John that when he was covered in nard, it made this aroma everywhere. You could eat with him. He knew how to grill fish and did it with his disciples. You could talk with him on a hot, sweaty day, like he met with the woman at the well in John chapter four. You could travel with him, like in John chapter five when he travels to Jerusalem. You could go to religious ceremonies with him, like he goes to the celebration of lights in John 
chapter 7. He was a man. He said less mature things when he was 11 and more mature things when he was 13. Now, don't worry. At 11, he was more mature than you. But at 13, he was more mature than himself than he'd been at 11 because we're told twice in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, like John the Baptist, grew in wisdom and in stature. He grew up like a normal human being. He is able to understand the fullness of human experience. And yet, as you watch this extremely normal human being, you will notice as you read through the Gospels that there is nothing normal about him. He is the God-man. He is coming in the flesh. Now, what makes Jesus so clearly God is not his miracles. Did you hear me? What makes, often people will say, Jesus is clearly God, look at the miracles he did. Well, you know what, when I read my Bible, I find false teachers can do miracles. Pharaohs, uh, magicians in his court could do miracles in the work in the power of the devil. In Daniel's day, the, the astronomers of that time could do their own miracles. Being able to do miracles is not proof that you're God. Moses performed miracles, he's not God. Elijah performed miracles. He's not God. What makes Jesus' miracles prove his godness is first of all that after doing them, after doing something that showed he clearly had power over creation, he follows that up by saying, I'm God. And the miracles he does are the kind of things God can do. So he says to the woman at the well, I am the living water. He says to the crowd in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger. Now, read Jeremiah. Read Isaiah. You'll never hear Jeremiah or Isaiah or Moses or David or anyone in the Bible saying, if you eat me, your soul will be satisfied. That's reserved for God. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He walks through creation calming storms and acting like the God he is. He's fully God and he's fully man. And that's why it's so important that we listen when he says, and I, when I am lifted up, it has to be God. Now, I want to make this very clear. Let me... Uh, Harken back to Pastor Jeff's sermon. So if, you're, if your mind can dig back seven days to what I thought was a wonderful sermon. Pastor Jeff laid out this principle for us and really just laid out a principle Jesus gave us that if a grain of wheat stays above ground, it just stays a grain of wheat. But it goes into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. And that's a general principle that applies to all Christians. If you die to yourself, it will bring fruit. It applied to the church in Korea, it applies now. But we need to make something clear. When you die to yourself, 
and it bears fruit, it's not the same as when Jesus dies to himself and bears fruit. He's in an altogether different category than you and I. We might be godly men and women, he's the God-man. We might be those who follow God and have the life of God implanted in our hearts. He is the one who is the life of God. He doesn't have the life of God in the soul of man. He is fully God and fully man. And so when he talks about his own lifting up, you need to recognize that he's not just one more example of what it looks like to die to yourself and see spiritual fruit. He is the ultimate death and the ultimate source of life in the entire universe. That's who he is. Second thing, what does he do? What does he do? He says, and I, when I am lifted up, lifted up. Now, what do you think about when you think of someone being lifted up? Promotion, commendation, encouragement, going up a grade, going up a degree, Going up, going up, going up, going up in the ranks in the military. We think of people getting better and better and better. Seeing, their, I'm in the launching years as a parent. My life just two, four, seven is spinning around. How do I make my kids? lot in life as good as possible? How do I open up the best doors and the best opportunities for these kids? How do I think about getting them lifted up? That's not where Jesus starts when he talks about himself being lifted up. He's not talking about, well, what that song's saying. He's not talking about charging into Rome. He's not talking about taking every tribe and tongue and nation by force. When Jesus talks about being lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up to die. And that gets extremely clear. John doesn't want there to be any confusion. That's why the next verse says, and when I... And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John comments on that. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, what's going on in your head if you think that dying is lifting? What's going on in your heart if you think that being lifted up to be murdered is an exaltation. What's going on is that Jesus was aware that the primary reason he came to earth was not to advance his own agenda or his own cause, but to glorify his Father. He wanted to put God on display. And what's stunning about God is that he will be put on display primarily in his gracious humiliation. If you want to see God, you don't just look at tall mountains or majestic valleys. You look at a poor manger where Jesus lay. If you want to see God, you watch Jesus pull out a towel to wash toe jam from people's feet. If you want to see God, you see Jesus on a cross dying for those who hate him. Now you have to remember, the people he's dying for are not pretty good and they just need a little, you know, just the scuffs kind of rubbed out and then they'll be all back to new. The people Jesus is dying for are utterly separated from God. They despise God. They're, They're dead to God. 
They live and serve the devil every minute of their lives. They're utterly rebellious and in enmity and in full of hatred towards God. And Jesus says, I'm going to lift up God by dying on the cross for them. That is the way God displays himself in the world. What he wants you to see about him is that the most beautiful thing about him is that he dies for sinners. He takes those who deserve death and he takes death for them. He takes those who are enemies and he takes the place of a crucified enemy for them. He takes those who are alienated from him and he becomes alienated from his father. He breaks, if you can even talk this way, the fellowship of the Trinity so that, so that no longer, so God actually, so he actually says of God, my God, my God, why are you forsake, why are you forsaking me? He, the, the God-man, will be lifted up. Why? Here's the promise. Because when he's lifted up, he will, do you see the verse there? Draw all people to himself. Now that draw word is not particularly flattering to you and I, is it? Right, you would, you would hope that Jesus could sound a trumpet and all brave soldiers would rally to his cause. But the word draw really has the idea of being pulled or dragged, or the dictionary actually even says hauled. And if I be lifted up, I will pull in, haul in, drag all people to myself. Leon Morris says this way, he says, draw is used elsewhere in the gospel to bring out the truth that people do not naturally come to Christ. So, the word draw assumes a world of sinfulness, callousness, rebelliousness, and a world that's not waiting for a savior saying, show up and I'll follow you, but a world that given half a chance would crucify him. He says when he lifts them up, when he's lifted up, even though the world is saying, we want you dead, his death will wind up being a drawing to the world. Now, here's something I think gets actually kind of messed up in our theological thinking. People who have a big view of the sovereignty of God and the sinfulness of the man they often have this idea that the way God draws is by a powerful poof. God gives you new birth, and that's true. And you wouldn't come without it. But we don't want to see this drawing merely in terms of raw power. It's the drawing of love. What draws all people to him is that he's lifted up to die for those who hate him. It's his love that melts them. It's his love that draws them. The power, it is power to take a dead sinner and make them alive, but it's not raw power. It's not like an electrical jolt. It's the power of love that breaks the heart and makes it new and converts those who hate him into those who love him. 
The book of Hosea talks of God leading his people with cords of kindness and bands of love. Song of Solomon tells of one lover calling out to another, draw me after you. Jesus is drawing people to himself through the power of love. Man, I could preach here for an hour. So many of our marriages are in trouble because men only got the note on authority. They're going to draw this woman by declarations of authority. I bet that's working really well for you. But Jesus draws by displays of love. Self-sacrificial love by the one who has every right not to sacrifice anything. He draws people to himself by dying for others. And unless, when he does it, it actually communicates to hearts that they ought to follow him and they actually get drawn in by God. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Beloved, have you ever been drawn in by the love of Christ? Have you ever been drawn in by the love of Christ? Not by the superiority of the Christian worldview, and you saw how all those other worldviews were stupid nonsense. There's lots of folks converted that way. But I fear they're not converted. Just seeing that Jesus makes everyone else look dumb and you want to be on Jesus' side is not Christian conversion. Christian conversion is when you're drawn in by his lifting up. When you're drawn in by the fact that the one who rules the world has sacrificed himself for sinners. And if that looks beautiful to you, if there's anything in your soul that leaps up at the, at the thought of Christ being lifted up, it's because God has personally drawn you and communicated to you about his own dear son. John 10 says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. If you have seen that you're a sinner, but Jesus has died on the cross for sinners, you are utterly reprehensible to God, but Jesus has made you totally acceptable to God by dying on the cross for you. If you see that, flesh and blood has not communicated that to you, but God's own Holy Spirit has brought that home to you. And you're saved because God is working in you, drawing you to himself. Himself, drawing you with cords of love to see that he is beautiful. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. Which voice? The voice of the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John 6, 44 spells it out. It is written in the prophets, John 6, 45, and they will all be taught by God. Every Christian receives a personal lesson in their soul that they need a savior to die for them and that Christ has been lifted up and it's the most glorious thing God has ever, ever done. 
More glorious than delivering you from your personal difficult circumstances? More glorious than taking you on a vacation to see the most beautiful of his creation? The most beautiful thing God has ever done is loved the world by sending his son and dying on the cross for sinners. That's what the father teaches. If that's what you've learned, you're a Christian. If that's what you believe, you're saved. If that's what you hold on to, you are the chosen of God, the elect of God, the ones who will be kept forever. He has been lifted up. He has loved you and he will save you to the uttermost. That is what he teaches. And if that can't do anything to your soul, then you better stare at it till something does. Because anything else working on your soul is an imposter, it's a felon, it's a fake, it's a phony. It'll lead you astray, it'll lead you to hell, it'll lead you to hell from the church. The only message that God teaches his elect, the only message that God teaches his people is my glory is best seen at the cross. My grace is best displayed in the crucified Jesus. I came down to earth to put myself on display and the living word was destroyed, annihilated, forsaken estranged from my presence so that you could be reconciled, so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be justified, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be my own dear child. That's the gospel. That God has lifted up his son. And the result is this, that all people will now be drawn to him. Do you see that in the passage? Romans chapter, uh, John, you won't see it there. John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, when I be lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Now, there's a distinction there that I, that I have found helpful over the years that I need to make sure we're aware of. Because you could read that verse out of context and you go, okay, so he's lifted up. All people are going to be drawn to him. Does that mean everybody gets saved? Is that a universalistic verse? Does that mean there's a universal salvation? Jesus dies on the cross, saves people from going to hell, so nobody's going to hell, everybody's going to heaven, because Jesus said it, and I'm claiming it, if he be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And I'm going to say no to that for two reasons. And I hope I've taught you this a thousand times, and I hope I teach it to you a thousand more. If you've got one verse that wrecks the rest of the Bible, you're misunderstanding the one verse, okay? If you've got one verse that makes you misunderstand the rest of the Bible, then you are misunderstanding the one verse. And the Bible is abundantly clear, just in the Gospel of John, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not, not he died so everyone's going to heaven, but he died so that whoever believes in him will not perish. Or think of the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. It says in John chapter 20, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's no living without believing. There's no eternal life without believing. But, but you might say still, but, but why does he use the word all? Why does he use the word all? Why does he say, if I be lifted up, all men will be drawn to me? Why does he do that? And I learned a little phrase many years ago 
and I, I think you should commit it to memory because it, it'll serve you multiple places in the Bible. And it's about the meaning of this word all. And I'm not trying to play language games with you. I'm trying to be sensitive to the context. When it comes to the word all, it often means all without distinction, not all without exception. Maybe repeat that after me. All doesn't always mean all without distinction. Or sorry, better not repeat after me. I don't even know what I'm saying. So don't repeat after me. I'm going to read my notes one more time, and hopefully that'll make it clear. Sometimes the word all means all without distinction, not all without exception. Let me put that a more simple way. When Jesus says all here, and in multiple places in the scriptures you'll find this, it means all kinds of people, not every single person. When Paul talks about God wanting all people to be saved, it doesn't mean every single person will be saved, but all kinds of people will be saved. And so really what we have here is we have the great missionary promise of the New Testament. That if I be lifted up and die on the cross, all kinds of people will be drawn to me. Well, let's apply that three ways real quickly. This Christmas, let's tell each other the gospel. Let's tell our kids the gospel. Let's tell our spouses the gospel, our roommates the gospel, the folks in our GCG the gospel. Let's remind everyone, he came as the God-man, the word became flesh, so that he could be lifted up, so that all people would be drawn to him. And if your heart is wavering from him, or beelining away from him, you're backsliding away from him, the best thing you can do for yourself or another is to focus on his being lifted up. That's the draw. That's the attraction that keeps us with Christ. The second thing is, we should share the gospel with our unbelieving friends and neighbors without fear. We've got so many reasons not to share the gospel, don't we? I mean, it's, it's a postmodern time and things have changed. We're living in a negative world. There's so much hostility to the gospel. It's very difficult. You can't even assume Christian presuppositions anymore. The culture's lost its Christian foundation. There's all kinds of reasons. If you lift him up, they will be drawn in. If you tell people about the Christ who died on the cross, God will gather his elect. And guess what? America hasn't managed to be the one culture where that won't work. Wherever he's lifted up, be it in Mozambique or America, he is going to draw people to himself. Third, the reason we send and support and why every single Christian at some point in their life should consider going, whether or not God has called them to go to the uttermost parts of the earth to share the gospel, is because that mission can't fail. I mean, the human response to is, boy, we better not do that again. I mean, that jeopardizes family life, and how, how are those kids gonna grow up without a dad, or what, what, what if something awful happens? Boy, we better pull back, and there's many in the church who use that logic. The simple fact is that in, glory, in 
trusting Jesus and glorifying Jesus, even where he's at, is declaring a message of hope that cannot fail and that will bring others to himself. And so every dollar we put in, every prayer we put in, and all we send to go are participating in a mission that has no chance of doing anything but succeeding. Because once he's lifted up, the effect is always, and it has been these last 2,000 years of church history, that people are drawn unstoppably by cords of love to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we wanna ask you that you would move our hearts to be a people who love you, to be a people who love your mission, and to, to love it because you've loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.